I'm Emma G. Rose. I'm Shell Shearer. We're indie authors. And this is Indie Book Talk. Hello and welcome back to Indie Book Talk. Today we have something a little different. Different? Different. I was telling you about this, Shelly, a little while ago. I had a conversation with one of our old friends. Do you remember Emma Jean? Oh, yes. Yeah. Emma Jean is involved with this web magazine that's like blowing up. And it's called She the Magazine. She interviews all kinds of people about all kinds of things and, you know, women doing great things in the world for the most part. And she reached out to me recently to talk to me about the work that I do around mental health and how that ties into my being an authoriness. So I'm thinking maybe we'll just play that on the podcast, let people hear that. And then uh, that'll be the episode. What do you think? That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to hear it. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to do that after this little transition. Yay! My name is Emma Jean. We are going to begin our talk today, True Story, Fantasy World, a mental health chat with author Emma G. Rose. Right now, I'm going to just say that hello, and my name is Emma Jean, and I'm here today interviewing Emma G. Rose, one of the most gifted people I've ever had the pleasure of getting to know. Today, we're going to talk about her personal experiences as an author and how they were informed by a close family member while she was still in college. I am personally of the belief that creativity is one of humanity's greatest quotes. It's just so uniquely human to be able to take something like loss and transform the pain into great works of art. So without further ado, let's jump right in with Emma G. Rose. So Emma G. Rose, can you introduce yourself and your work? Yes, you said my name 400 times, but I am Emma G. Rose. I write contemporary fantasy stories about people meeting tough times or challenges usually with the help of a mythical creature or god, sometimes with the hindrance of a mythical creature or god. They're not always as helpful as they think they are. I have three novels out right now, Nothing's Ever Lost, Assembling Ella, and Near Life Experience. My fourth novel has just gone to beta readers in the last two days, and it will be called On the Bank of a... I'm also the co-host of the Indie Book Talk podcast and the founder and owner of Imperative Press Books Publishing House. That is amazing. And just because you said it earlier, I'm going to say it again. This is Emma. (laughs) (laughs) And so, Emma, I understand that you recently did a fundraiser for suicide prevention. What organization was that for and why do you support them? So that was the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that I did the fundraiser for. What I did was I gave a dollar for every ebook sold during the month of March to the AFSP. And I do that because after my cousin died by suicide, the AFSP was really helpful to us in sort of reminding us that we weren't alone, reminding us that There's actually, sadly, a whole community of people that have experienced this and in giving us resources and and tools to feel like we could do something and not just be victimized by this circumstance. 
that that's a what a wonderful reason and like when an organization touches upon you like that and to be able to give back it's such like a noble circle like that and I know that you also spend a lot of time talking about your books in schools and so when you visit schools you often touch upon suicide prevention can you kind of share the bullet points around that so the interesting thing about the way I talk to kids at schools is that it's not overtly about suicide prevention. I don't go in there with like a bullet point plan of here's how we talk about suicide. What I do is I tell my story and I talk about how after my cousin died, I'd already had plans to live in Japan. So I ended up on the other side of the planet from my friends and family and dealing with this profound loss and emotions that I had never felt before. So I started writing and it was my way of dealing with that that loss, that tragedy. So I talked to the kids about that, partly as a way to, again, remind them that if this has happened to them or if they know someone this has happened to, you know, that it does happen and they're not alone in that experience. But also I kind of sneakily teach them coping skills. So I talk about the people that have helped me. I talk about using writing as a way to cope, as a way to sort of unpack your feelings. And then when I do workshops and things, uh, writing, I also talk a lot about feelings and how feelings motivate what characters do and also what regular people do. And then within that, we talk about choices. And there are some choices that you can make in your life that are choices you can take back or change. I talk in, in my normal speech, talk about going to school and thinking I was going to be a journalist and then deciding I didn't really want to do that, even though I earned the degree. That's a choice I could take back, a decision I could change. But I draw the them that suicide is a decision you can't take back. And it's something that has far-reaching effects, even if you're not here to see it. So we talk about choices. We talk about coping. We talk about just the reminder that everybody's going through something and that that's normal and expected that everyone's going to have challenges in their life. Absolutely. And so with that message, how do you feel the students respond to you on those issues? The students are amazing. They break my heart every single time. I've never been to a school where my heart hasn't broken just a little. Because what will happen is when I say the words, my cousin died by suicide, there's often a gasp. And so you can see this sort of collective response from the entire group, sometimes an entire auditorium full of kids, right? They've, they've filled the bleachers of the gym and I'm there talking and you see them go and they feel that, like how, how scary and painful that is. And then afterward, I always, always get a kid who comes up to me and tells me about their loss. And it's not always suicide. Sometimes it's something else you know, they lost a parent or a sibling or to something other than suicide. I had someone come to me recently and say that they had lost a close friend and their biological parent one to suicide and one to drug overdose within like a six month span. And these are kids, I mean, as young as middle school and as old as college that have these stories. Me being there as sort of an outside adult to say, this is a thing that happens and it might happen to you and I hope it doesn't, but it might, is I think helpful because they feel like, oh, it's I'm not weird or broken or or strange because this happened. And my feelings around it aren't weird or broken or strange. They're just how people feel when things like this happen. 
Absolutely. Um, and so then do you feel like they've taught you anything from your experience working with them? They, they teach me, they remind me that I'm not alone. It's really easy to get in your own head and forget why you do this. And they're constantly reminding me I'm not alone and that like the work that I do thing, but they've also just taught me how to think about this loss, whether they realize it or not. Because every time I have to stand up there and tell this story, I find something new in it that I can share with them and that their reactions sort of feedback. And so it gets to be a better talk every time and a better experience every time. And, you know, my most recent one was at a middle school, which is abnormal for me. I usually do high schools and colleges, but the middle school kids taught me that unfortunately you're never too young to have this conversation. It's slightly upsetting to hear, but <laughs> No, very amazing that you are out there and reaching them even at such a young age. And then I wonder, like, what is your key takeaway? Like, what do you really hope you teach them? I want them to know that they are not alone. I know I keep saying that, but it's really easy when you're when you're in middle school and high school, especially to feel like you're a weirdo. Right. You're like the only person who's like this and you're the the only kid who has these feelings. And I want them to know that not only whatever you're feeling totally normal and reasonable and you are supported and loved by the people around you, but that you can turn those bad things into good things if you choose to. And it's ultimately your choice to figure out what you do with those feelings and how you respond to the world. You can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose what you do with it. Absolutely. And one thing that I kind of always wondered about is the way that your loss has played into your creative outlets. And so when you were in college, that's when you lost your cousin by suicide. And how did you use writing to cope and process? So my first book I wrote entirely for me and sort of by accident in that I it was constantly on my mind, in the back of my mind, whatever I was doing, there was kind of this awareness that this big, terrible, life-changing thing had happened. And I started writing as a way to sort of distance myself from that feeling, to create enough space that I could look at it without immediately just breaking down. I actually wrote my interpretation of the scene immediately after he died. So my characters often are in the afterlife or dealing with you know, near death or right after death experiences. And so I actually wrote the moments after my cousin's death on the page. And it was the hardest thing I ever wrote, but it was also the most healing because I could sort of work through those emotions and through what he might've thought and assuming that there's anything to think and feel after that experience. So it, it ultimately gave me the mission that I have of Telling stories that aren't just fun stories, but are also ways of looking at the world and ways of thinking about hard things that make them alert for people, hopefully. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I'm seeing like you, Faith, would probably be the hardest thing in a loss, facing what it would have been like in those final moments. And you were able to like fully visualize that. And that, I guess, is a gift of being an artist, an author, that you're able to bring yourself there in that way. And so one thing that 
I imagine you had to deal with a lot is the adults in your life. When your cousin did pass away that way, how did they handle the loss for you? That's a really interesting question because I was kind of hovering on the cusp of adulthood, right? I was 20. I I graduated from college the year my cousin died. I moved to the other side of the world that year. I got married that year. And so I was sort of liminal space that you fall into when you're not quite a kid, but you're not quite an adult either. And I remember thinking how strange it was, the differences in the way that the people I thought of as adults reacted. So it was almost like everyone became more themselves or more completely themselves during that experience. People who tended to be nervous or anxious became more so. People who tended to take control stepped up and found ways to handle things. For my own grief process, though, I think that we all sort of dealt with it on our own in many ways. It was like we were afraid to make each other sad by talking about it too much or by acknowledging the pain of what was going on. And it took us years to reach a place where we could do things and say, we are doing this because we are sad about this loss. And so we're going to have this experience together so that we don't have to be sad alone because at least we can manage to not be sad by ourselves. I I love that. And it's almost like, I, I wish, you know, if that was part of your message that you could help people get to that moment faster. And I, I, and then I do have the question too, how did you personally react? I personally, I remember getting the phone call and being so shocked. Like you don't even realize how shocked you be by, by words until you, someone says something like this to you. So my mother called, I knew something was wrong by the tone in her voice. And I was expecting it to be about my grandfather who was older and not in great health. I had another family member who like, if you were gonna put bets on who was gonna have a problem, it would be this one, right? And so I immediately jumped to those two people and neither of them. It was my youngest cousin who last I saw him, you know, was 18 years old or almost 18 years old, about to graduate from high school and like, you know, being the on top of the world like you are at that time. And I was just shocked. And I think for the whole first week, as we went through the process of coming together and and doing all the ceremonies around loss, I was sort of numb. It took me months if not years, to really start to experience the emotions fully. And then once I did, I often would partially experience them and then step back because they were too big or too scary. I would, you know, try to read a book or watch TV or do anything to get myself away from those feelings and not have to feel them. And I think that's the beauty of writing is that for me, I could take this thing that was real, that had happened to me, to my family, to people I knew and loved, and put it on the page and create a space. It became a story. And it gave me an element of control because it was my story. So I could say he immediately regretted it. Which, by the way, if you read interviews by people who have attempted suicide and lived, a good proportion of them say their immediate first thought was, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that or I hope someone saves me, or that was a bad decision, right? Like there's this, a lot of people have this immediate response and I could put that on my cousin and just decide that that's how he felt because that's how I wanted him to feel. You don't get that experience anywhere else but therapy, I think. So writing was my therapy. 
Absolutely. And I can kind of relate there. I do have a scene in one of my books um, my, when my mother had passed away. In the book, the, the mother gets very sick and is just bound to her bed. And it was like I got to put all the pain of losing my mother into that character and kind of experience it from the outside. And, and I think maybe that's a common coping mechanism among writers. So then my next question is do you have a message right now to anyone out there who is having those suicidal thoughts? I think my big message is you could always do it tomorrow. Like it doesn't have to be right now. And in, in the meantime, maybe talk to someone or maybe write something or do anything else because this is a decision that once you make it, you can't unmake it. But every other thing you do before that, you can undo. So you could go to therapy once and decide it's not for you, right? You could talk to a doctor about mental health medication and then decide, no, that's not what I want. There's lots of other options that you can test and try and see. And this is the one choice that you could make that you can't take back. So wait, wait till the end, wait till you've tried everything else. And then, and only then do what you got to do. I can't tell you what to do, but we really want you here. The world's better with you in it, whether you believe that right now or not. That I'm, I'm kind of blown away by your response. That was not at all what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> uh, but it, it was beautiful and it was honest. And I'm wondering, like someone like you that's had these kind of experiences, do you think that the rest of the world should get better at recognizing suicidal ideation? Or do you feel like still it's really hard to see? What I think the world actually needs to get better at, it's not recognizing suicidal ideation. There's a checklist for that, right? What we need to get better at is recognizing pain before it becomes suicidal ideation. Recognizing that the small things, the things that seem small right now, the things that we're struggling with that don't suit, that's the time to get help. If you're struggling because you're anxious all the time, if you're struggling because getting out of bed seems like a chore every day, you need help then. Let's not wait until we get to suicidal ideation. Let's start with good mental health from the very beginning. And that's where we as a society need to get better. And that's where the healthcare system needs to get better. You don't get treatment for mental health usually until you are way past the of of serious danger. And that's like watching somebody's cholesterol just go up and up and up, but refusing to do anything until they have a heart attack. Why are we doing that? That's, it's ridiculous. We need to be better. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, I am definitely for, you know, removing that stigma around mental health and all the things we do as a society that make it so hard for people to get help earlier on, like you're talking about. And so I know that one way you have helped yourself, as you said, is through your writing, And so have you found peace through the writing and work around suicide? So this is really interesting. I wrote Nothing's Ever Lost, and that was my catharsis book, right? I was going to write this book, and I was going to feel better, and it did work. I felt much better having written it, and then as my family read it and started to tell me how it made them feel better, I was like, okay, I got this. I did it. I feel better. But every year, we'd get to March. March 8th is is the day my cousin died. And every year we'd get to March and I would be a basket case. Like I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. It was like the grief was happening all over again. The trauma was happening to me all over again. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't let go of it because I'd think, okay, this year it's going to be better. And it never was. So then I wrote Assembling Ella. And Assembling Ella is the story 
of a teenage girl who lost her brother when she was six years old. Now she's suddenly older than he was when he died or like hitting that point where she's about to get a little older than him. And she is just struggling. And the whole story is about learning to overcome, not overcome. That's not the right word. Learning to live with, to, to build your life around and, and make space in your life for these things and these feelings. After writing Ella, I suddenly felt like this weight had lifted. So it wasn't enough to deal with that immediate grief. I needed to deal with all the long-term repercussions of that too. And I think just now in the last year or so, and it's been 14 years, just now in the last year or so, have I reached a point where I feel like there's peace and I feel like I can talk about my cousin with joy instead of with this really mixed emotion of sadness and anger and all of those ambivalent feelings that you get when something like this happens. That That's so powerful. I, I always looked at are able to process as role models and I'm listening to you talk about this and I'm thinking in my entire life, I have never really heard someone speak who has lost someone through suicide and really talked about how they coped with that. So I think you are just serving as such a powerful role model here. And my final question is going to be, do you have any other insights you think that people should know? I think the biggest thing to know is that however you're dealing with it is how you're dealing with it. And that's okay. So the the worst thing that can happen here is that you allow the loss of someone to also end your life. Whether that's through following in their footsteps and taking the choice that they made, or whether it's just refusing to live anymore, refusing to go out, refusing to do, refusing to grow. That's the worst thing that can happen. The best thing that can happen is that you look at this and you say, yep, this hurts. Yep, it's awful. Yep, I wish this never happened. But what am I going to do next? What am I going to do with this feeling? Because ultimately, grief can be destructive. It can break you down. It can put you in the corner and just turn you into an ogre in the dark, or it can give you the tools to do something else. And I hope that that's what I'm doing every day. And I hope that that's what everyone who has to feel this does, because we only lose when we let grief stop us. And I don't want that for anyone. You are an exceedingly wise woman. I think that uh, you are the best case scenario here. Uh, And so I hope that lots of people do get to hear your message, you know, and that we'll both be able to amplify this on other channels. And if people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, I'm here on Twitter. So I'm at Emma G writer on Twitter. I'm very active there. Talk to lots of people, love meeting new writers. I'm also on TikTok. I'm just starting to get myself kind of in the groove of TikTok. Some of this presentation may end up there. So you can come follow me there. You, sh- If you're a writer or if you like books at all, you should listen to the Indie Book Talk podcast, which we have a new episode every Thursdays, wherever podcasts play. And for all other questions, visit my website, emmagauthor.com. All right. It's been amazing talking to you and I hope to talk to you real soon. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Emma. So that was a pretty heavy topic. Uh, For anyone that this touches or if anyone needs to know about it, there is a text support line. Uh, You can text 741-741 to reach out for support. Please do so if you ever need assistance. The world is better with you in it. Yes. Yes.